Welcome to the Royal Christian Centre Sermon Podcast. We're going to spend the next little while just exploring uh, what it is that God might have to say to us this evening. And uh, we do this week in, week out, not because we just haven't got it yet, you know, not because we're a bit dim and we haven't quite clicked on uh, to what it is that God wants to say to us, but rather because how God wants to speak to us is absolutely massive. He's interested in every single part of our lives. He's interested in your life and in my life. Would you tell someone near you, God is interested in your life? God is interested in your life. Uh, You know, I, I, I tell you to say these things. I'm aware sometimes I tell you to say them. You might not be entirely sure that they're true or not. But can I assure you that they are? And as we unpack the Bible together, you will find that God has something to say about your experience, about your reality, about the way that you live your life, actually, and about something even more powerful than that. The way that he, Jesus Christ, who is God, fully, eternally God, yet came into this world, the way that Jesus lived his life. See, Jesus lived a life of sinless perfection, never put a foot wrong. Never said a hasty word. Never sinned, never failed. I don't know whether you're starting to like Jesus or whether you're starting to feel a little bit kind of, you know, put off by him. I don't know how. How could he be this good? Yet he was. And being so perfect, he was also welcoming, gracious, kind, loving, just a beautiful human being. God fully, fully human also. And Jesus Christ lived his life with a singular vision with one point in mind, and that was to make a way for you and me to be made right with God our Father. You know, we can only sing, you're a good father, because of Jesus Christ. We can't know God as our Father, except through Jesus. Jesus himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Don't know what you think about God. This evening we're going to tackle a question about the character, the nature of God. I don't know what you think about God exactly this evening. You might have all sorts of ideas about him or, or perhaps you never think about God at all. But you can know God as a loving father through Jesus Christ, through his singular life, through his singular death, that he died in our place to pay the price for all of our wrongdoing and to make a way to his death Also, through his resurrection, that Jesus Christ rose again. I thought that was exciting. Maybe people rise from the dead all the time in your experience. I don't know. Jesus rose again. Oh, good. You are alive. Excellent. Thought we might need some resurrection tonight as well. But Jesus rose again so that you and I not only can know freedom through his death from sin, but we can also freedom to the fullness of life through him. Not just any old life but life in God's family, life with a loving father who is for you and not against you. This is the God that we're talking about. It's the God we're going to talk about this evening. You see, over recent weeks and some weeks to come, we're going to be addressing a number of questions uh, that you've asked, questions that you wish somebody would answer, questions that trouble you, questions that intrigue you, questions that maybe are very personal to you, 
or questions that uh, maybe just really get your goat, really kind of cause you to, to feel a little bit frustrated. And you feel maybe that some of these questions are an obstacle either to your faith or the faith of people that you know. This morning, we talked a, a little bit about God and his plan, that God actually is in control. Sometimes we might be a little bit out of control, but God is in control. God has a plan. It's a plan of love, a plan of care, a plan of purpose. It's not always an easy plan, especially when it relates to our lives, but God is there. He's real and he's really in control. Tonight, we're going to look at a question about God's character. Quite a few of you, when we filled in our little cards asking our questions, you said you wanted to know about this. And our question for tonight is, why does God seem so angry in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament? Is God angry? And there's a really personal question that we can flip onto that from the back. Is God angry in the Bible? But is God mad at me? We don't really like anger, do we? Except maybe when we're the ones being angry and then it's completely fine, isn't it? Does anything, does anything get your goat? Have you got any bugbears, any pet peeves? Is there anything that really, really winds you up? You're all nodding at me. You've got way too many bugbears. Uh, we, we think anger is a bad thing, except for when we just permit ourselves to get a little bit wound up about certain stuff. But I think generally speaking, anger, especially when anger leads to hate or violence or the mistreatment of others, anger then we can pretty much all agree, is a bad thing. I read a story this week, and it's a story from 1894, so a little while back. In the spring of 1894, it's about baseball, which I know very little about, but it's about anger, which I'd like to say I know very little about as well. But we'll see how we go. But in that spring, the Baltimore Orioles came to Boston to play a routine baseball game. But what happened on that day was anything but routine. The Orioles' John McGraw got into a fight with the Boston third baseman. I have no idea what that is, but it's a player. Within minutes, all the players from both teams had joined in the brawl. So nothing like English sports at all, where everyone is completely measured, right? Uh, well, move on. But the warfare from the pitch quickly spread to the grandstands. Among the fans, the conflict went from bad to worse. Someone set fire to the stands, and the entire ballpark burned to the ground. Not only that, but the fire spread to 107 other buildings in Boston as well that were all burnt and gutted, all because one guy from the Baltimore team wanted to have a fight with one guy from the Boston team. Anger is not a good thing. <laughs> Quickly spirals out of control, doesn't it? In this instance, burnt down half of Boston. Anger is destructive. Poisons things, poisons relationships, it often brings violence. And no wonder we instinctively recoil from anger. When you're faced with somebody who treats you with anger, who comes at you with aggression, we recoil from it, don't we? We're affronted by it. And the truth is, sometimes we find anger within our own lives, within our own hearts as well. And we've joked about it, but we joke because there's a bit of truth in most humor, isn't there? 
Again, I read something this week. It's a, it's a silly old poem, but I think there's a bit of truth in it as well. There once were two cats of Kilkenny. You know you're going to like this poem, don't you? Any poem that starts like it's got to be good. There once were two cats of Kilkenny. Each thought there was one cat too many. So they fought and they fit and they scratched and they bit till accepting their nails and the tips of their tails instead of two cats, there weren't any. That's just daft, isn't it? But the point being, anger consumes. It consumes. And as much as we want our anger sometimes when we indulge it to have an effect on other people, sometimes when we we feel we are rightly angry, we, we kind of just let our anger go with the view that some other people, well, frankly, they need to hear what I'm gonna say. That's how we justify it, isn't it? And we want to have a go at someone else, but what we fail to realize is actually we're destroying ourselves in the process. And as much as we might damage another, we damage ourselves. Anger, it's a terrible thing. And disliking anger, as we do in our better moments, actually we, we might resent and, and dislike anger when we see it elsewhere. It's become common. I would suggest in our culture today to look at perhaps certain stories in the Bible, even perhaps misrepresented or mistold stories in the Bible, but there to see a God who is often painted as angry. I suspect each of us have probably met with people and they've said, I'm not sure I like the God of the Old Testament. He seems a bit angry. He seems a bit changeable he seems perhaps monstrous it's not uncommon in our culture to hear people say things like this Richard Dawkins in his book The God Delusion describes the God he doesn't believe in which is a funny old one in itself but he describes the God he doesn't believe in as a control freak that's what he calls the God of the Bible an ethnic cleanser and a malevolent bully I don't think Richard Dawkins likes God that he doesn't believe in Another man named Leslie Scrace in a book called The Unbeliever's Guide to the Bible. It's strange how many unbelievers are obsessed with the Bible, but there you go. He describes the God of the Old Testament as dishonest, capricious, cruel, jealous, and violent. Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, in his provocatively titled God is Not Great, claims that the Old Testament warrants slavery and ethnic cleansing there's a lot of people with a lot of a struggle with a God perhaps a God that they don't even believe exists but the God that they see in the Bible the God that they wrestle with whether they want to or not is a God that seems to confound them sometimes and many people in your experience people in your classes on your courses at college and uni in your workplaces on your street maybe even in your family will struggle oftentimes when they approach the God of the Bible. I would say to you, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you know, we've got a job to do. And it's not to apologize for God, absolutely not. I don't think any of us are quite big enough to do that. But it is to explain and to actually remove some of the false obstacles, to remove some of the false offense that people may read into the Bible. And actually then enable people to read out of the Bible what is true and what is real, what is substantial and what will hold up. 
So what's the basis for the anger that people think they see of God in the Bible? Well, there are certainly passages where God is described as angry. But why is he angry? Why is God angry? We're going to actually wrestle with a really, really difficult passage of the Bible just for a moment or two this evening. I thought, let's not you know, mess about here. Let's just go right in at the deep end. And so we're going to actually look at a passage in the Bible that is probably incredibly troubling. It may be a passage you've never read or never looked at. Maybe in a book of the Bible you've never read or looked at. But in Deuteronomy chapter 9, I want to read a few verses that describe a passage of history, a story in the life of the people of God. And you'll probably read this. I suspect as we, as we read it together, it's going to come up on the screen. You'll probably think, hang on a moment. Is that in my Bible? I promise you it is. Deuteronomy chapter 9. We're going to read from the beginning. Hear, O Israel. Now, Israel was a person, somebody that was chosen by God, but it also became a nation that named after that person, that actually God was doing something. He had a plan, what we talked about this morning. He was going to grow up a group of people, and by sustaining them and teaching them and actually doing some incredible things through their history, even through this nation, Israel, would come a person, Jesus. And Jesus would be able to bring salvation into our world. But we've stepped back a long, long way back in history here. And here God is speaking to these people, this nation, who are about to make a major decision, a major step on their journey. Here, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan, a river, today, to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know, and of whom I have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. <laughs> I love it when the Bible doesn't really mince its words. How about this? If God were to come to you, so we've been singing songs, haven't we, that say you're a good father, your love never fails, all these kinds of wonderful things, and they're true. How about if we were to sing a song this evening that said, I'm an incredibly stubborn person, God, and I really need your help. I think that we should, we should sing these songs, shouldn't we? What do you <laughs> Okay, you're going to write it, Martin. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, we need some of this stuff. 
over and over and over again, God makes plain in what we've just read that the people he's chosen to bring about his plans and purposes in this world haven't been chosen over and above another group of people because they're good. I don't know why you come to church this evening. Maybe loads of reasons. You may have come for the great music. You may have come to meet with friends. You may have come to open up the Bible together. You may have come because you need an anchor in the middle of the, the storms of life. It may come, you may have come because you, you want some direction or some purpose in life. I, there are many, many different reasons for coming to church. But the reason of feeling superior or better than other people can't be one of them we're not better than other people because we come to church we're not better than other people because we read the bible we're not better than other people even because we believe in God we're not better than other people because we've received salvation we're not better than other people because we try by the power of the spirit of God to to act out our salvation we don't get some kind of superiority ticket by being a Christian. Actually, we, just like these people in what we've read, because we connect with God, because yes, we are saved, yes, we are made new, we get to be a blessing in this world. We get to say, other people are just like me, and they deserve the exact same chance with God that I've enjoyed. Other people are just like me. In fact, I know people who are better than me, but they deserve the opportunity to hear the good news about Jesus Christ. This is what it is to be a Christian. And it's similar in what we just read in the Bible. You see, God was going to use his people to bring about the incredible story of salvation, of hope, of renewal, of redemption in the Bible and in in all of human history. But it wasn't because they were good or perfect, better than other people, It wasn't, as the Bible says, because they were righteous. Actually, oftentimes far from it. They were pretty ordinary, just like you and me. I'm sorry, did I call you ordinary from the pulpit? That was terrible of me, wasn't it? But they were. They were ordinary people. They made mistakes, sometimes mind-bogglingly daft mistakes. Yet they did it nonetheless. We also need to recognize in this reading that God is not elevating his people and putting them on a pedestal, nor is this the final page of the Bible, nor is it the last step on the journey, nor is it the end of the story. Actually, we find ourselves pretty much somewhere in the middle here. You see, the Bible teaches us, and this is our belief, that God made everything perfectly absolutely perfectly if you would have a, a little glance in the book of genesis it would say that that god made the heavens and the earth and he populated it all with all of the splendor of creation and he looked at it and he saw that it was good and then he made people people like you and me and he looked at his created people bearing his own image and he said about people hey they're very good i wonder would you look at somebody near you and say you're very good some of you, you're not comfortable with saying, but you are. And God creates perfectly. 
He didn't mess up. He didn't misstep. He created perfectly. And yet the Bible teaches that even though God created perfectly, with the perfect possibilities of flourishing in him, people still chose a different way. They chose a way of rejecting God's good rule and actually seeking to be in charge themselves. It's not surprising. I think all of us have the urge to be in charge of our lives, don't we? It's not a great urge. People rejecting God, moving away from God, rebelling against God, brought brokenness into our world. And that's where we find ourselves with this story. We find, in fact, that the brokenness that began with Adam and Eve and really it began in the heart of every human. It's, it's moved to such a place. And we read that it wasn't because of the righteousness of the people of Israel that they were going to get the land. No, it was because of the wickedness of the nations in the land. And we don't need to labor the point. And, you know, I know there were kids present. They were doing horrendous things in this land. Historically, we know that there was human sacrifice amongst other things. There was a depravity in so many ways. And this culture had reached the depths of depravity. These Canaanite people, though uh, graciously permitted by God, who was incredibly patient to live in this land for such a long time, they had so reached a point of devastating wickedness that God could no longer look upon it. See, what's going to happen in this story is not God getting angry in a moment at a person because they've done a thing wrong. No. What's happening in this story is God's anger burning against the brokenness and the wickedness and the tragedy and the horror that has befallen his good creation. This is not in a moment. This is not even in a year or a decade or even a hundred years of human history. This is over thousands, perhaps, years as people journeyed further and further and further away from God and further and further and further into wickedness and sin. And lives were being abused and misused and broken on a daily and moment-by-moment occasion. Into this scenario, God says something must be done. I don't think principally God is motivated by anger, although he's angry against sin and against evil and against wickedness. God is actually here motivated by many things, some of which are justice and love and patience and the will and the desire not to do away with his world, but to make it new and make it better again there are a few occasions like this story in the bible where incredible acts that seem to give reason for people to say well god is so angry there are a few moments like that in the bible Moments where we see actually numbers of people losing their lives, wicked as those lives were. And we can wrestle with these occasions. I would say to you as a Christian, you should never just get okay with these kinds of stories. You should never say, oh, well, that was, you know, then. 
we are talking about people here. And I know that many of you, when you read these stories, maybe when you read the story of the flood, or read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, perhaps, or there's another story under the rule of King Saul later on, and you read these stories, and so many people seem to lose their lives, I would suggest it should sit uneasily with you. It should be difficult for us to wrestle with these passages, but there are certain key elements in all of them. You see, yes, there is judgment, but it's not the judgment of a moment, as we've said. Actually, it's God's perfect, holy, patient, righteous judgment upon incredible wickedness that needed to be dealt with. God brought about his judgment in various ways. In the time of Noah, the people were phenomenally wicked as well. And God, the Bible teaches, brought judgment by means of a flood. But in that instance, God didn't simply just do away with people in a moment. The Bible teaches in 1 Peter 3 that actually all the time that Noah was building the ark, people were talking with him and asking and wondering what's going on and Noah wasn't shy about telling people. They had opportunity to recognize their wickedness. They had opportunity to turn away from ways of wickedness and turn and throw themselves on the mercy of God. Did Noah and his family survive just because God was picking names out of a hat? And he said, hey, uh, Noah can be the one. No. Noah and his family survived because he placed his trust in God. He rejected the ways of wickedness, and so he was saved. Noah faithfully spoke to the people of his time that they needed to change. And there was the possibility of salvation by faith. In the story that we read in Deuteronomy, the people were going to go into the land of Canaan and God was going to drive out the wicked people and there was going to be a wholesale change that wickedness would be driven out and righteousness should come in through God's people. And yet even then, through the witness of the people of Israel, there was an opportunity for the people of the land, this land Canaan, to change their mind. Some of you may know of a lady who went by the name of Rahab. And she lived in a town that was a town full of wickedness. And in fact, although we don't know exactly her background, it seems that she had rather a checkered history herself. And yet when she was made aware that that way of living was wicked and wrong, when she was made aware that God's judgment was coming, when she was made aware that there was an opportunity for change, what did she do? She chose the way of God. See, God never brings judgment without an opportunity for salvation. He never has and he never will. Yes, God judges wickedness, but he never judges without an opportunity for change, for salvation, through placing our trust in him. In all of these stories, we find a God who is angry, not in an emotional, changeable, or momentary way. Actually, we find a God who created all things perfectly, a God who knows he's going to make all things new, even through the very sacrifice of his most beloved and only son. He's going to give everything for the people of this world, including you and me. 
He's going to do everything necessary for us to be saved. This God is not just dispensing anger from a place of heated emotion, no far from it. The Bible makes it really, really clear that God is incredibly patient. Psalm 86 verse 15 says, You, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Again, later in the Bible, Micah 7 and verse 18 says, Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity that is pardoning sin and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love I think all too often we try and make a God of our own imagining we try and make a simple God it'd be so neat and tidy if we could make a God that we could completely understand You can't. I think as Christians, we often like to focus on certain elements of the character of God. And we'll say things like, God is love. And we're right, because he is. But God is love and God is just. God is merciful, but he's also mighty. God is gracious, but he is also perfectly good. And we can't make a God of our imagining. If we do, then we find those kinds of flawed and failed gods that are just as bad as a God who we think is simply angry. God is more. He is both just and loving. Jesus came into our world. And in John chapter 1, we find a description of what Jesus looked like when he came into our world. John 1, 14 said, the word that is God became flesh. This is how Jesus came into our world and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the son of the father, full of grace and truth. And you can't strip one from the other. Do you want a God that will always tell you that you're doing everything fine and you never do anything wrong? But you can't find him in the Bible. God will speak truth. And it will make us uncomfortable. But God is also full of grace. Because yes, he is a God of judgment. But he's not changeable. He loves you and he's patient with you. He's compassionate. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your frailty. And he wants you to come to salvation. He wants you to know the fullness of hope in him. So we can see that the God of the Old Testament who carefully managed all of human history as messy as human history gets, carefully managed it all to bring us to the point of the cross, the point of redemption. It's the same God that we see walking and talking and loving and challenging us in the New Testament. It's not a different God. Put simply, God the Father, God the Creator is the same God as God the Son. Jesus Christ and this is where it gets really interesting for us because God has right righteous anger against sin God is entirely right and entirely within his rights to achieve the removal of evil from his creation but God 
through Jesus, chooses not to exact his rightful anger against us, but rather makes a way of grace, a way of mercy, if we will humbly choose him during this time of his patience. We see the exact same principles as we saw in the Old Testament. You see, God will judge fairly. And there is time for us to repent from ways of wickedness, ways that are distant from God, ways that rebel against God. There's time for you and for me to change and turn back to him. God speaks to you and he's speaking so carefully and so clearly if you'll listen. And I don't mean just to me, although I'm really thankful for you listening so well this evening. I mean, listen to God. Listen to the way that his spirit is speaking to you. Listen to the Bible if you're willing to diligently, carefully read what the Bible is teaching you. He's witnessing to you his truth and his love. For there is salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Have you placed your trust in him? Have you placed your, tra- your trust in Jesus Christ? Is your faith in God? I want you to know a God who is patient with you and compassionate with you, who brings you a means of salvation, who brings you hope. I don't think anybody wants to come before God for the first time and know him as their judge. I think it's far, far better for us to come through Jesus and know God as our Father. It's the only way that we can stand before his judgment. Place your trust in Jesus Christ. And if you have, can I really quickly answer that second part of the question? Is God angry at me? We don't like anger, do we? And sometimes we fall into the trap, and I would suggest even as Christians, we sometimes fall into the trap of thinking, God's mad with me because I messed up. And God's just waiting for an opportunity to punish me. I'm not going to ask you whether you ever thought that as a Christian. I know that sometimes we do. Sometimes we think our mistakes mean that God, well, he's done with us now. He's finished with us. There's no opportunity for us to get back in his good books. I don't know, sometimes that may work like that with uh, people, relationships you have with others. Sometimes we fall out of friendship with people when we mess up, don't we? Sometimes there might be a boss and we've done something wrong and, well, they don't have much grace for us in the future. I, I don't know whether I want to delve into that too much. That's not true with God. It's not true with God. See, the Bible teaches really, really clearly that all of the punishment for sin, all of the anger for the brokenness of our world, all of the wrath of God against evil has already been laid upon Jesus on the cross. I don't know whether you've ever really thought about what it is that Jesus did for you on the cross. He's made a way so that you and I need never be punished I'm not good enough. I know I've done wrong. I know I deserve punishment for some of my wrongdoing. I know that that's true. But because of Jesus, I will never be punished by God. How can 
That's astounding. It is absolutely true. I've got a long way to go with God. A long way. It's absolutely true that I mess up so many times in so many ways. You're really nice not to say aloud amen at that point. But I do. I've got a long way to go with God. And I know that when I get things wrong, God will discipline me. But it's not the discipline of an old school teacher with a cane saying, hold out your hand, Greg. It's not that kind of discipline. It's not that kind of punishment. God will never punish me. But God will discipline me. It's a good father. It's what good fathers do with their kids. Because he wants me to become more like Jesus. His perfect, sinless son. Is God mad at you? No. Is God mad at your sin? Absolutely. He wants to drive it from your experience. Is God mad at the evil that surrounds you oftentimes in this world? Absolutely. And there will come a point when Jesus returns and all evil will be driven from this world and God will make all things new. That's the promise of the Bible. Is God mad at you? Not if you place your trust in Jesus. Not if you humbly surrender. All the punishment is done with. Now there's promise. It's promise. It's promise. Not the promise of a free reign. Not the promise of do whatever you feel like, but the promise of a real, genuine, godly life. A life lived that really has incredible value, incredible meaning. A life even like Jesus' life himself. God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Have you placed your trust in that kind of God? Don't let anybody tell you there's a different kind of God. There isn't. He's consistent. He's consistent. This is the way that God is coming. Coming to you this evening. Wanting to speak with you this evening. Wanting to meet with you this evening. I would invite you. Would you open up a conversation with God tonight? Would you start to talk with him? Get to know him for who he really is. Not for some caricature, not for some cheaply painted version, but for the real genuine God, the real genuine God who has given everything for you and for me. Should we pray for a minute? Let's pray before we come and sing as we close. As we come to pray tonight, I'm conscious that I've invited you to get to know this God a God who is angry at the brokenness of our world, more so than you are. I know that you may see the injustice of our world and it really sits, it sits so uneasily with you. You see injustice and you're angry about it. May I tell you, God is so much the more angry about it. And yet God doesn't come to you angry at you. He comes with patience. Even in our brokenness, he comes with love and compassion. And he makes a way for you. So that you will come to him as your father. Know his love. So that you can be changed by Jesus. It's the only way to stand before his judgment. I've invited you this evening to start to get to know this God. and We're going to pray.
And so I would invite you, if you're comfortable to do so, perhaps just to bow your head, close your eyes. This is a moment for you, in fact, to speak with God. He'd love to hear from you. I think there could be something really significant for us this evening. It may be this evening. You've heard described a God who is perhaps different to the one that you thought he was. It may be this evening that you're realizing, recognizing that God loves you. And that he wants to save you, bring change to your life, make you new. This Jesus is the one who has paid the price for all your wrongdoing. and He offers you the free gift of new life. I want God to connect with you this evening. I know God himself wants to connect with you this evening. So that I can help you along the way. I want to pray with you tonight. And if this evening, you perhaps for the first time, or perhaps for the real time, are wanting to get to know this God of love, this God of compassion, this God who has given everything, even his own son for you, I want to pray for you tonight. And while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, if you this evening are saying, I want that kind of God, I want that kind of Jesus, I want him to forgive my sin and make me new. If that's you this evening, I'm going to invite you to do something very simple but very profound. I'm going to invite you in just one moment to raise your hand. Every head's bowed and every eye's closed, but I'll see it because I want to pray with you that you will connect with God and know this God of love, of patience, of compassion, of goodness and justice. So if that's you this evening, I want you right now to lift up your hand so that I can see it and I'll pray with you. Is there anybody here who wants to get to know this God for the first time or for the real time? Thank you down the front, that's great. You can put your hand down. At the back as well, that's fantastic. Is there anyone else who would like to get to know this God tonight? You have an opportunity to do so. Not just because I say so, but because God is present here and he's come to meet with you. Is there anybody else who would like to join these two people and say yes, I want to know this God. I want to know his love. Okay, I'm going to pray with these folks who have raised their hands. Lord God, I thank you for people here this evening who perhaps for the first time or in a, in a, a new and substantial way are saying, I want to know a God of love and of compassion, of justice and of mercy who can set me free from all of my wrongdoing, make me new. I pray God this evening that they would know that that is true for them. Lord Jesus, let them know that you love them. More than this, Lord God, help them from this day to journey with you in a new way. That Lord Jesus Christ, they would know freedom that you alone can bring. They would know the peace that you alone can bring. And that Lord Jesus Christ, they would know the possibility of walking with you now and forevermore. Lord Jesus, I pray for each and every one of us. Help us to recognize you for the wondrously complicated God you are. Help us not to try and simplify you. You're not a simple God. You are the creator of all things and you, you blow our minds. Help us to be in awe of you. 
to be in love with you, to be in love with your goodness, faithfulness, your compassion. Lord Jesus, you have spoken to us. You've told us through your word that we can be like you. In fact, that we can be slow to listen, slow to talk, slow to anger, but quick to listen. You've told us actually that we don't need to follow the pattern of this world and we don't need to contribute to the anger of this world. We can choose a better way. You've told us in your word that even when we see injustice, brokenness, and pain, that actually we have a right to be angry at that kind of brokenness. But you have said in your word to us, in our anger, don't sin. Rather, you call us to be the change in our world. You call us to bring justice where there's injustice, to bring hope where there is despair. You call us to bring love where there is hate. Lord Jesus Christ, you call us to live in a different way. Help us, God, to take on your mantle. Help us, God, to be filled with your spirit. To go in your grace, speaking truth as well as living grace, that we might, Lord Jesus, be like you in this world and bring the change that this world so desperately needs. Our world is full of wickedness, but God... By your presence, our world is even more powerfully full of goodness and of love. Help us, Lord Jesus, not to be cowed, not to be overwhelmed by evil, but to overwhelm evil with your good. Go with us, we pray. Commission us, dear God. Empower us for your glory in your precious name.